this is I Read a Book Once. My name is Emma. What the heck am I saying? Hello, my name is Emma. What am I saying? Oh my goodness. Hello and welcome to I Read a Book Once. My name is Emma and this is a podcast where I talk about books. Obviously, I just said my intro wrong three times in a row, two times, uh, many times in a row. And what a way to start a Saturday night than uh, not remembering your own intro you've been doing for now 42 episodes. But that's besides the point irrelevant. Let's get it started. Today, I'm going to be talking about Hillbilly Elegy, a memoir of a family and culture in crisis by J.D. Vance. So you might have heard of Hillbilly Elegy before because there's a movie of it. I, however, have never seen the movie, but I read the book nonetheless. So let's talk about it. Let's get into it. So if you listened to my last episode on The Other Westmore, which if you haven't, you should totally listen to it. It was a killer episode and a great book, and it's going to come up in this one. So anyways, if you listened to that episode, then you would know that um, that was a book that my aunt gave me. We did a book swap, and Hillbilly LG is the second out of three books that my aunt gave me in our book swap. So uh, this was a recommendation from her. And it was, again, a book that's outside of my comfort zone. I don't typically read memoirs, and by I don't typically, I mean I never read memoirs unless they were assigned to me for class or something like that. But she recommended it to me. She brought it all the way from California, and I thought, this sounds interesting. I'm going to read it. And it was, in fact, a very good, very interesting book, and I can't wait to talk all about it today. Now, before we get started, just a few things to get out of the way. The first is I want to issue a few trigger warnings. I will be talking about some of these issues and this is also just so that you know if you want to read this book or see this movie, these are things that will happen. So there are instances of domestic abuse as well as addiction, both drug and alcohol addiction. And so I just want to provide that trigger warning here. You make your decision on what you need to do from that. I also want to provide a spoiler warning. I will be spoiling Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. I'm going to go through the kind of the plot of the book and talk about it. And so if you don't want it to be spoiled, stop here, go read the book. I would recommend it and come back and listen to my plot summary and discussion section. So I feel like I had more to say here in this beginning section, but I don't know what it was. So we're going to get started and get into the plot summary. I practiced a little bit with my dad today in the car, went and visited my grandma, and when we are in the car, he likes to ask me what I'm reading, which was kind of how, not exactly how this podcast started, but how the discussion, or the plot summary section was, came about, I suppose, is that I would kind of explain all these things to my dad. So I kind of have a head start on both what I think is going to go in the plot summary and the discussion section. So let's see how I do. I finished this book about two weeks ago, and so it's going to be a bit more of a vague plot summary, and it's also a memoir. So with the same thing with the Westmore book, it's not as detailed because of the memoirness as if I was telling you a plot of a fictional book. But let's get into it. So this is a family, like the subtitle says, it's a family memoir. So the first couple chapters are about J.D.'s family, specifically his grandparents and then his mom and his mom's siblings, his aunts and uncles, things like that. And so if you don't know, Hillbilly Elegy is a memoir about J.D.'s life and he comes from a family from the Appalachian Mountains, which are a mountain range on the eastern side of the United States. They, it's very long. I think it runs all the way from the top of New York down to, 
I'm not sure where it ends, maybe like Georgia, but like the heart of Appalachia is really Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia, that area right there. Now there is more of it, but this is kind of the core Appalachian region. Think about Dolly Parton, that where she's from, that's Appalachia, right? So, and the people from Appalachia are typically kind of called hillbillies and thinking about like poor white people, things like that. Not to be confused with rednecks, which are Southern people. Hillbillies are the Appalachians. I feel like I'm talking about like some foreign like fantasy world, but no, this is just real life. So anyway, so it's kind of a story about his family and the people of Appalachia, right? So it starts off talking about his grandparents. They are from a small town in Kentucky. And once they get married, they move to Middletown, Ohio, which is in between Cincinnati and Dayton. Now, you if you know me in real life or if you don't, you might know that I went to the University of Dayton. So there was a lot of weird connections I had with this book, actually, not necessarily in me relating to it, but just like things that I have seen in my life. So I was went to school in Dayton. So I kind of recognize that aspect of it because he later lives in Dayton in one part of the book. Anyways, let's get back on track. So his parents, not his parents, his grandparents moved to Middletown and they have their son first and then later his mom and then his aunt a year after his mom. And the first part of their marriage is relatively normal. They're able to work themselves up to a better level. His papa and his mama, those are the names he uses, Ha, uh, his papa has a um, industrial job in a factory. I think he makes cars, if I'm remembering correctly, is what he did. And so that was going well. They were able to bring themselves to an economic status that they did not have before in Appalachia. And so then, um, but their marriage kind of goes south when his papa's drinking problem gets really pronounced. There's fights, there's like arguments, it's really nasty. And eventually they separate. They never get divorced, but his papa moves out and ends up living in another house down the street. And his papa eventually gets better in that he stops drinking completely one day, just out of the blue. And the damage is kind of done. So we move on to kind of um, JD's mom, who out of the three siblings is the one that goes down the path most expected of the poor white Appalachian person. And that his uncle moves on and moves to California and becomes successful. His aunt marries an abusive man early on when she's like 18 or something like that, but is able to escape the marriage and later finds a loving marriage and has a great family and things like that. But JD's mom is the one that kind of falls through the cracks and that she was either the valedictorian or the salutatorian or something like that at her high school. But college kind of fell through when she gets pregnant with JD's sister and then she ends up becoming a nurse, but there is a drug addiction problem. She's a very um, neglectful and abusive parent to JD and his sister Lindsay. And um, he, the, her other main issue is that she is a husband hopper, which is a word I've just made up, but she's constantly going from man to man, dragging JD and Lindsay with her. And so they don't have a stable upbringing. The stable factor in JD's life really is his grandparents. They are always there. They have the same house. That's always a safe place for him to go. When he's in elementary school, I think about fourth grade, he and his mom and his sister move in with one of her husbands and they move far away. And it was a very bad time, which ends in them like running away. It, it was a, it was a whole hot mess. There's also an incident where 
JD's mom's so mad at him and then takes him the car and almost wrecks the car to kill him, which was very, very disturbing. Um, JD's dad is not in the picture for the beginning of his life, but he later starts spending weekends with him and thinks he wants to try and live with his dad. While he's there, he kind of becomes a Christian evangelical fundamentalist, which I'm going to talk about later because, again, I have a weird connection from school about that. And that part was really not resolved. So I'm going to go into that more depth later. He only stays for a few weeks before calling his sister Lindsay to bring him back. And so he's really, like I said, it's very unstable at this time until eventually sophomore year, his mama puts her foot down and says, JD's living with me. And he stays there. And that's when his life sort of turns around. So during this time, his grades have... So when JD is... And I'm kind of going to skip back a little bit because I was going all on and on and on and I forgot about the part. So when JD is, I think, about 10 or 12, his papa passes away. And this is like the point, you know, when I said all these things about his mom, this is the point where that kind of explodes and becomes really bad. When he dies, the mom is very upset with her children for feeling grief and being upset that their grandpa died, their papa. And she is just like, he was my dad, not yours, blah, blah, blah. And this is when her drug addiction gets really bad and she gets sent to rehab. Then when it gets bad again, JD moves in with his mama. And so his grades are tanking during this time in between when his papa dies and he moves in with his mama, but he gets his grades back on track. He ends up serving in the military for a few, I think four years after he graduates. And during that time, his mama passes away. You're seeing a similar pattern again with his mom doing the same thing again with the, after Papa died. And then um, JD ends up going to OSU and then later getting into Yale Law School. And he uh, becomes a lawyer. And then he ends up marrying a woman that he met at law school. And then they are lawyers and they live their life and they have two dogs. Now, this is a very condensed version of what happened, very superficial surface level sort of stuff that I'm getting at, because there was a lot more similar to with the Westmore book. There's a lot more going on. There's a lot more anecdotes, stories, details, things like that. But for the sake of brevity, which you know I'm not brief, but to try and be brief, that's all I'm going to kind of get into in this plot summary. I'm going to go more in depth to certain parts of the story when I get into the discussion section, which I'm going to start with now. The first thing I want to talk about is Republicans, which I, yes. Okay. So what I really want to talk about actually is the Republican realignment. When my aunt gave me this book, she said, I read this book and I understand Donald Trump supporters now. And so I was like, huh, I wonder what's going to, what's going to be in this book. Now, if you're from America and if you're not, you might be familiar with some of the stuff I'm going to be talking about. But for the sake of, let's say, somebody who doesn't know anything about this topic, I'm going to explain a little bit. So basically, one of Donald Trump's key supporter groups were these Appalachian white poor people, and they were one of his strongest base think, bases. Think about coal. His whole thing about clean coal, bringing coal back, like coal miners, that's like a key industry in the Appalachian region. And also when you think about bringing industry back to the United States, bringing factory jobs back, things like that, that is also a big key concern and like a draw for these people to um, vote for Donald Trump. However, there was an interesting cultural similarity almost 
between Donald Trump and the way that JD describes people from Appalachia. And so this, of course, is my my drawing, my inference based on JD's writing. So he is generalizing based on the Appalachian people he knows, and I am generalizing based off the book that he wrote. So let's not get it twisted. This is my little disclaimer right here and that I am making these inferences and drawing these conclusions based off of this book. And I cannot speak as a, a member of the community, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, let's do it. I had to pause and take a moment to gather my thoughts. But basically what JD talks about is kind of the rhetoric that is being used by both his grandparents and people that he knows that live in Appalachia, that grew up there, that continue to live there, things like that. And their rhetoric sounds very similar to Donald Trump's and that it's a very like non-PC, take no shit, like say what you mean sort of thing. And that they appreciate it in the same way that, that and the, basically when I was reading how they were talking, it reminded me of how Trump talks, not necessarily what they're saying reminded me of it, but it's put forth in the same way that they would appreciate the no bullshit manner of Donald Trump. And like I said, there's also these like things that Trump was calling to and incentivizing that was like part of their core economic beliefs. One thing that was kind of interesting, though, about the hillbilly culture that JD talks about, which I found just absolutely fascinating, was he talks about like, it's kind of like a culture, all like, they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. Like, let me explain basically what I mean. So JD talks about the summer before college. I don't remember what year. He works in a factory and he gives this anecdote of a person who worked there and would take 45 minute bathroom breaks and then got fired because you don't take 45 minute bathroom breaks, especially not when you work in a factory. It doesn't really work like that. And then was like extremely upset and belligerent when he got fired. Like, you can't fire me, blah, blah, blah. Well, you're not going to work and actually being hardworking and doing your job. You're just expecting that you should get the money just because you're entitled to it when you're not doing any work. And then he also talks about all of these like men in his like grandparents' old neighborhood that don't have jobs and just talk about how there aren't jobs and then he talks about how he worked at the factory and they had a hard time keeping those jobs filled because of this problem that these men didn't want to come and get the jobs. These men, like I'm talking about men in general here. This might not necessarily, I'm pretty sure that's how JD f frames it. Like that these men didn't want to, like didn't want to do this, didn't want to do that. And they just want, they talk about how there aren't the jobs, but they don't even want to look for the job. They won't hold down the job, which I just found also fascinating that it, that like JD basically talks about, at the end he talks a little bit about, you know, like policy solutions because obviously his life was kind of a wreck up to a certain point and this like instability of poverty a little bit as well as drug and alcohol addiction really affecting his life and other things and abuse, things like that, domestic abuse, things like that, child abuse, blah, blah, blah. And so like he talks about like, obviously we know that these things are cycles, these are patterns, these are continuations of things that have already happened and so he's talking about policy but he says the thing that he thinks could make these things better is a change in mindset really he argues that the Appalachian the hillbillies need to get over themselves this is not what he says but he's basically like they need to decide that they want 
a better life. They want to work hard. They want to try and do something else. They need to get off their butts and get a job and hold it down, which I found absolutely fascinating argument. I don't know necessarily if I agree with everything that he's arguing, and he's not necessarily saying let's get rid of welfare entirely. And he also makes an interesting point at the beginning of the book, talking about how the welfare queens that he knew were like white hillbilly ladies, things like that, not necessarily the stereotypical black welfare queens that we hear about in the media and things like that. So that was also super interesting that he like pointed that out as well. But it was just, I don't, I think I've like really like moved off from my original point and kind of just like gone on a tangent here. But these arguments that he's making about solutions and what makes a difference and how these things need to change was super fascinating because I feel like he didn't really put forth any policy suggestions And, you know, I don't know if he necessarily is somebody who should be putting those things forth. Yes, he's educated. He's a lawyer. You know, he served in the military, so he's seen parts of the world, things like that. But he's also just a person. He's not a politician. And so what is interesting is to, like, see his life, right? The things that were good, the things that were bad, and what made his life better? What were these things that made an impact? And then also just, like, what those things are okay, so these are things that we need to foster in our communities, right? So I don't know. That was really interesting. And I think this whole thing I was going to talk about was the Republican realignment, which is basically this idea. A lot of Americans don't know this and also probably people not in America, but they don't know that the party ideologies of the Democrats and the Republicans switched. So you see a lot on Facebook, you might see something like, Lincoln was a Republican. The Republican Party is the party of Abraham Lincoln, the um, like getting rid of slavery, blah, blah, blah. Like Republicans can't be racist because Lincoln was a Republican president. Sort of this sort of argument. Right. And while that is true, that Lincoln was a Republican president, the Republicans of the 1860s look absolutely nothing like the Republicans of the 2020s. And so I'm not here to make a political argument. What I'm here to do is explain kind of what happened and that the parties evolved. So when we are looking at kind of these major milestones, when you look at the Civil War era, Republicans were the ones that were more against slavery while Democrats were for slavery. Then moving into the Reconstruction era, you're seeing the Jim Crow laws. These are really being put into place by Southern Democrats. And they are the ones that are saying like segregation, Jim Crow, no civil rights, whereas Republicans are the more progressive party at the time. Then you move into the 1910s and you've got um, Teddy Roosevelt and and President Taft, and they are trust busting. They are um, being preservationists, conservationists. They're putting aside national parkland. They're doing things like that. And so um, you're seeing this is very different from the Republicans we know today as well. Then you move into the New Deal and you're starting to see Democrats inching more to the left, right? And then we continue to move forward, move forth, and Democrats are kind of the ones that are putting forth the civil rights package. And then with Reagan, you're seeing this final like shift in the realignment and Reagan really getting a lot of Reagan Democrats and Republicans becoming more of value voters. So voting on issues such as abortion, gay rights, things like that. And then you're also seeing Reaganomics and that sort of economic idea being introduced as well. So 
what I thought was interesting about this whole thing is you can kind of see it like playing out and that JD's mama was a lifelong, uh, not Republican, a lifelong Democrat, but like, did she necessarily agree with the Democratic ideals of the early 2000s? Maybe not, but she was a lifelong Democrat. So super interesting stuff right there. I think we don't talk about the party realignments and ideological shifts of the American political parties enough and that people don't know that they happen and think the parties have stood for the same things forever when that's not true. Parties are constantly changing and shifting their ideologies based on the times, right? They're products of their times, focused on different things. And sometimes Republicans are progressive and sometimes they're conservative. It just depends on what time era you are in. And we'll have to see where they go from here. But that was all a very long-winded way to say that this book made my aunt understand people who voted for Donald Trump. And I don't think I got quite to the point of understanding as she did, but I definitely saw why she made those conclusions, those connections, and things like that. I want to, from here, make a few comparisons to the Westmore memoir. And so there might be like a little tiny spoiler, but I don't know. Not really. I'm just going to talk about like a big connection and big like overarching idea that Westmore puts forth in his memoir as well. And so like one of the big similarities. So as I started reading this book, it was interesting coming off of the Westmore book to then read Hillbilly Elegy. Both of these books are about poor communities, but they're about very different poor communities. The Westmore book, if you're not aware of, you didn't listen to that past episode, is about two black men with the same name, Westmore, and they were both born in Baltimore streets away and they had vastly different lives. The author goes on to be a Rhodes Scholar, a White House Fellowship, and like goes to John Hopkins, things like that. And the other Westmore ends up in jail for um, robbery of a jewelry store and being an accomplice in the murder of a security guard slash off-duty police officer. It's the same person though. And so like that is talking about the poor black on the Eastern seaboard in Baltimore and the Bronx or New York specifically. This book is talking about poor white people in the Appalachian region. So you're talking about very different, distinct groups. They're very, very different. But both authors come to the same conclusion on what made a difference in the trajectory of their lives, which I found fascinating. And so both authors say that the reason that they did not end up another statistic, right? And like the author says, the reason he doesn't end up as the other Westmore in jail and JD says the reason he doesn't end up addicted to drugs and a, a deadbeat, some random children, like doesn't graduate, things like that, is that they had people who cared about them. It's the people who care, they say, that makes a difference. So in the Westmore book, the author's family is able to intervene in the crisis moment and send the author to military school, which again, kind of a crazy concept. But in military school, he learns responsibility. He kind of takes recontrol of his life and his education, and he goes forward and becomes a successful member of society. In this book, JD is kind of spiraling when he's not living with his mama, when he's living with his mom, bouncing around with these different men who are filling father figures, things like that. And then once he is in his mama's house. He has a stable structure. She's encouraging him to do well at school, making him study, making him get a job, do things like that. His life turns around as well. His grades get better. He ends up serving in the military. He ends up going to OSU. He ends up getting into Yale and things like that. I hope it was Yale and not Harvard. God, that would be embarrassing. 
Yeah, thank God it's you. Whew. Wiping the sweat off my brow. Anyways, so like what made the difference in both of their lives is that they had stable people who believed in them and that intervened in crisis moments. So JD has always had his papa and his mama who were there for him, that were always a safe place for him to go when his house wasn't safe. They believed in him and they encouraged him to do well in school and to dream big and they helped him get there however they could, right? And then Wes Moore, he again, like I said, his family intervened, they made financial sacrifices and they also encouraged him and they were able to provide that support. Not every family is able to do that for their child. If you have lots of children, if you really financially can't afford to send your child to military school, or if you don't have a mama and a papa who have a stable, loving home and are willing to take you in and get you out of your unstable life, then you don't have the same shot of making it like these two men did. So I found that connection very interesting that you're seeing it in both books because it's... In uh, Hillbilly LG, JD clearly states that he's a Republican, and in the other Westmore, Westmore states that he is a Democrat, or at least heavily implies it based on working for politicians and who he's working for and things like that. But you're seeing these two men on different sides of the aisle coming to the same conclusion on what saved them and what made their life better. They don't necessarily ar- argue for similar public policy um, solutions and things like that. But I found it extremely, extremely interesting that they come to the same conclusion. And so what does that tell us? It tells us that we need to help provide stable figures in people's lives. And the stable figures are what is going to help them emerge from the chaos, I guess, and become more successful and beat the odds, right? So I don't know necessarily how we do that. And like I said, I'm not here to provide public policy solutions. I'm here to talk about this book. But this book, in turn, invites us into a conversation of how can we improve the lives of hillbillies, as JD calls his people. Again, using the his people makes it feel very odd to me, but like whatever. So I don't know. I don't know. But I just find it very interesting. And um, kind of odd. Along that line, wait, did I talk about this? I think I talked about the public policy versus personal responsibility that JD says that the hillbillies need to take personal responsibility instead of just wait for public policy to intervene and make life better, which that is a very Republican sort of viewpoint, but I found it very interesting. Okay, I promised to talk about the evangelical fundamentalist Christians, and I'm going to deliver on that promise. So when I was in college, I took a um, visual rhetoric course where we studied the Amish and the Christian fundamentalists. Very fascinating. If you don't know what visual rhetoric is, which you probably don't, if you don't even know what rhetoric is, here I am to explain it to you. Rhetoric is basically an argument. It is the, I'm going to Google the definition of rhetoric. Let's see what we got. Okay, this is the definition that Google gives. The art of effective or persuasive speaking or writing, especially the use of figures of speech and other compositional compositional techniques. So basically, rhetoric is just giving an argument. It's this idea of argument, right? And so this was actually my um, my concentration in college was rhetoric and composition. So like this idea of how do we make an argument? So visual rhetoric, typically rhetoric, when you talk about it, is words, whether they be oral or written. But visual rhetoric is about 
visuals. So it is about art pieces. It's about things that you can see, what the things you see, how they make an argument, how you can make an argument from the things you see, if that makes sense. So anyways, in this class, we talked about the Christian fundamentalists, which are a subgroup of Christians that are kind of absolutely nuts, wild. They believe in a very strict interpretation of the Bible, exactly everything in there must be true. And they've created crazy scientific fake evidence to explain it. So for example, they believe that the world was created in seven days exactly. So they do not believe in evolution. They believe that all the animals that were on the earth today were on the earth the day they were created. I went on this field trip for this class where we went to a recreation of Noah's Ark in which they showed everything that would have been in the ark. And one of the things they talk about is like skin color, basically. And so like on Noah's Ark, if you're not familiar, it's Noah and his wife, and then there are three sons and their three wives. And the way they explain how there's different races and ethnicities and skin colors is that so obviously Noah and his sons are white, obviously, they must be. And so the different wives, one of them is black, one of them is Eastern Asian. And then the third one is a redhead, I think. And that's how they explain how we have the different skin colors, which is crazy. So anyways, they believe in like a very literal interpretation. They believe that there's going to be, um, what is it? Armageddon or a reckoning or what? what is that called? I don't know, where the bodies fly out of the like ground and like the second coming of Christ, which like all Christians believe in, but like basically the like crazy one, the very intense version of that. Anyways, so JD, when he lives with his dad, his dad and his family are part of the fundamentalist church. And also, if you didn't know, the evangelicals, these Christian fundamentalists, were the like number one voter block that voted for Trump in both 2016 and I'm assuming probably also 2020. And like they voted like 90% of evangelicals voted for Trump, like something very, very high, right? And so that also is tying back into that earlier part I was talking about. But anyways, so JD's dad is part of this church. And when JD's living with him, he tries to be part of it. And he says that he enjoys it and that there's a community aspect and this community helps each other. And that if you need a ride somewhere, they'll provide the ride. If you lose your job, somebody will provide you with um, some a way to like find another one with some job leads. That's what I was looking for. The word I was looking for with leads on another job. You uh, need a new stroller. Okay, here's somebody's old stroller, things like that. So now that's making me think of, again, this like support structure can also be a way to get you out. But what I wanted to know more of is how JD like left that church because he was really believing some of that stuff for a little bit or was he not? I don't know. But he says he like leaves it and that it turned him off of the church for a while. And I was so fascinated. I wish we had more information about that because I was so intrigued. I was like, oh my God, I need to know everything about this. I didn't get to know everything about it. And I think why I was fascinated is just because we studied the Christian fundamentalists and that we went and we wrote papers about the Noah's Ark recreation, which is just called, I think, Noah's Ark or the Ark the Ark Encounter. It's called the Ark Encounter and it's in Kentucky. There's also a creation museum, which we didn't go to because my professor is banned from the creation museum. Her and her husband wrote a book on the creation museum. Very fascinating. Would recommend that. Anyways, 
I think that's why I was mostly intrigued by that um, book. No, that part of the book is just that I it made these connections from school kind of more real. So that is everything I have for this episode. A bit of a shorter episode, really, because I have some random parts I need to cut out, like my Googling and the word stumbling overs. But that's where I'm going to end it for today because I've kind of talked about all the things I wanted to. So would I recommend reading this book? I think I would overall recommend it. I did enjoy it. It like was very interesting. It provided me with to help me do make do some critical thinking. And I think that it will help others critically think as well. And it like also is kind of eye-opening and turning making you learn about people and cultures and issues and things like that that you didn't think of before. So that's what I have to say about that. There will be no episode next week. I bet you're wondering why. I shall tell you. I am moving and I am moving next weekend or I guess this weekend based on when this is getting posted. So I don't have time to make an episode next weekend. I just don't because I will be moving. So there won't be any episode next weekend. But the weekend after that will be, or the weekend after that, the week after that, I will be posting episode and it will be on The Kiss Quotient by Helen Huang. So we're really moving away from the memoirs, diving right back into the romance. It's been a hot minute since I've done a romance episode and I'm so excited. I'm actually recording that episode right after this because um, I didn't record last weekend because it was crazy and I will say that the Kiss Quotient is worth all the hype that it gets. 10 out of 10 would recommend. Can't wait to talk about that next week. And you should definitely tune in. So if you have thoughts, if you've read Hillbilly LG or seen the movie, which again, I haven't seen, so I can't comment on, send me them. You can send them to me, DM me on Instagram at I read a book once blog. You can email me at I read a book once blog at gmail.com and give me your opinions that way. And also, while you're on my Instagram, give it a follow. Um, I try my best and I'm trying to enjoy posting on Instagram. So try and the follow will really incentivize me to continue to try and post on that Instagram account. So give me that validation, please. And finally, you can check out my now defunct website, iReadABookOnceBlog.com, where I no longer make posts, but I still own the URL domain. So there's that. So without further ado, I think I'm just going to leave it here. My name is Emma. This was I Read a Book Once and I'll catch you guys next time.